If you're a good trainer, there's lots of ways, you know, lots of roads to Rome, as they say. There's lots of ways to get them the results that they want. Your challenge is to reconcile that with what is going gonna, is gonna to most excite them. You're listening to the Fitness Industry Podcast, powered by Australian Fitness Network. For articles, resources, and inspiration to grow your fitness business and career, go to fitnessnetwork.com.au, where you can also find a huge range of online courses accredited for CECs and other professional development credits, with up to a massive 30% saving for members of Australian Fitness Network. And for face-to-face learning, network members also save on standard rates for Filex, the fitness industry convention. In this episode, former NSCA PT of the Year and fitness educator Nick Tumanello chats in depth with the Fitness Industry Podcast's Alicia Smith about functional capacity and transfer, the five types of client that PTs work with, science, evidence and bias, and why PTs should base their upskilling on what their clients want to achieve, not on their own personal interests. I'd like to welcome today to the Fitness Industry Podcast, Nick Tuminello. Nick, thank you so much for joining me today. I appreciate you having me and I appreciate everything you're doing to help people like me spread our message. So I would love to jump into a question that you and I just briefly started mentioning before we hit record on the podcast, which is that term functional training. You know, we right. see it everywhere. Right. Uh, you mentioned particularly that you're seeing it a lot in Australia. What does the term functional training mean to you these days? And what do you think trainers need to understand about the usage of that term? Okay, so what I really like is how you frame that question. Because there's an important, you said, what does it mean to you? And so let's bracket that for a second. So we basically have kind of two definitions. We have, we can look up the dictionary definition. Mm -hmm. And dictionary definitions change because they're based on common usages more than anything else. So there is lots of definitions to be had. But so I would say two things. It's not a meaningless term like a lot of trainers say, and they normally say because it means different things to different people, therefore it's meaningless. Well, the term strength means different things to different people. I train professional rock climbers. When they say, I don't feel strong, they're not talking about deadlifts and squats. You talk to a power lifter and you say, are you strong? They're thinking, what are their their totals Mm -hmm. in their three big lifts? So the word strong means different things to different people, but nobody says that's a meaningless term. And we could use several other you know, words to say the same thing. So that's a logical contradiction that we have to face. So the fact is, if you look in the dictionary, the dictionary doesn't say, under the term functional, it doesn't say meaningless fitness buzzword, move <laughs> on to the next word, right? It has some fairly standard definitions. And the one that And the reason why I kind of have this all locked in is I've written about this in my book, Building Muscle and Performance. I talk about it in workshops. I I meet this topic head on because I think it's important to put some thought into. So when you look at the dictionary definition, the one that's most relevant to training, it means for a specific task or purpose. So what they're really talking about is transfer, principle, specificity, things of that nature. So if we base this conversation on what the dictionary says, and we want to have at least some objective between you and I there, some objective definition, 
that's not based on our personal opinions, we can look to that. And that just means specific task or purpose. So if somebody says, hey, well, I'm doing bicep curls to get bigger biceps, you could call that functional. Mm-hmm. If somebody's saying I'm doing a certain type of lift that looks like picking up a kid to get better at a mom picking up their kid out of, a, out of their cradle, then you can consider that functional. Now it starts getting confusing when people look at it more from a performance standpoint. They go, okay, well, the bicep curls might not be might be functional from from a purpose of bodybuilding, but not in regards to an athleticism standpoint. So in that case, what they're really talking about is what I would call functional capacity. And that means is if function has to do with a specific task or purpose, capacity would be your ability, your range of tasks, right? So for example, like a gymnast could be said to have a high functional capacity Mm -hmm. because they can do a very wide range of tasks. Whereas someone like a power lifter, I'm not saying they're uncoordinated, Mm -hmm but might be really good at a few, some lifts, but might not be, you know, as mobile or in other, in other ways, right? So they have a high expertise, a physical expertise in one, in one area. So it depends on the individual goal, but it really comes down to transfer. So if someone is looking for general fitness and athleticism, then, you know, you want a nice versatile program that increases functional capacity, a range of ability. The problem lies is when you start calling certain exercises functional because then by definition you're basically saying other exercises aren't functional and therefore aren't helpful, therefore don't transfer. And that is not true. For example, a lot of people look at machines. I hope I'm not going too far into this. No, this is okay, good. So a lot of trainers, it's very uncommon. This is nothing new. Mm-hmm. You know, people say we train, you know, movements, not muscles, whatever. That sounds really good, but it really doesn't even make sense because muscles create movements, mm-hmm. right? Okay. So without going into the little, you know, intricacies of that, it's very common for, for trainers to say machines are non-functional. Why? Because you're not standing, you're seated, you know, you're not using multiple joints, right? The machine kind of dictates the movement for you. So they want to put it in the non-functional category and therefore basically says non-beneficial. All right, well, we have research to demonstrate that that is false. For example, one study was done on elite level soccer players. They gave the entire team the same strength conditioning program, except one half of the team got an additional three sets of like the typical eight to 10 lying hamstring curl. And I think, I can't remember if it was twice or three times a week, but everybody trained exactly the same. At the end of the study, which I think was around seven to nine weeks, and at the end of the season, at the end of the study, the part of the team that got the lying ham, the additional lying hamstring curl had overall faster sprint times. At the end of the season, the group that got the additional lying hamstring curl, in addition to the strength program, had significantly less hamstring-related injuries. Now, I could get into all the details of why we think that is, there's some other research on EMG that looks at knee dominant hamstring exercises such as a leg curl versus a hip dominant like a RDL and shows that they actually hit the hamstrings differently. They activate different parts of the hamstrings. So you can start tying research together there. Now, some people question EMG research relevance, so I, I just kind of threw that in there. So, but we have research that demonstrably shows, and there are other research that looks at this too, and adductor exercises and things, that demonstrably shows that isolation exercises in addition to compound movements can have an additional benefit and do have transfer. In this case, increased performance, decreased risk of injury. So this takes me to a kind of a value system where I don't really care what experts say, I care what the evidence says. Mm -hmm. Because that's the best objective that that we have. Right? Or I care more what the evidence says. Mm -hmm. So with all that being said, so that's how the functional putting things in a box, this is functional, that is not. That's where it gets a little 
a little problematic. But the term is a very reasonable term. It's training for a specific task or purpose. So if your purpose is to reduce injuries and run faster, then anything that would transfer positively into that goal mm -hmm. could be considered functional. Some things have a direct transfer that's, I would say, an obvious transfer, like running is good for running, <laughs> right? Other things like a lying hamstring curl for running, because it doesn't look like it, right? It doesn't involve the same position, the same speeds. It make people observe and think, well, maybe it doesn't have a transfer. But we have research that shows it does. So just because something we observe doesn't mean it's, you know, our conclusions from that are accurate, which is why we do science. Mm -hmm. So it just has an indirect transfer. It has a more general transfer. Mm -hmm. But it's still functional, right? Because it's working towards that transfer of that. Correct. So, outcome. Yeah, so we have to broaden our definition of that okay. to focus on transfer. Mm -hmm. That's a safer, a much better term in, to focus on. Right? I like that. That's awesome. Yeah, so that's that's what I would say with that one. I do want to add one other thing to tie back, and then we'll move on to another topic sure. here. And this is why I talk. I'm glad you brought this up because this demands a lot of chatting. It it's it doesn't help to throw our hands in the air and just go, "Oh, it's a meaningless buzzword," mm -hmm. because that doesn't help us communicate. Because mm -hmm. it might be meaningful to someone else. So going back to how you originally started this, you said, "What does it mean to you?" Where a lot of the disconnect happens is that just like we trainers, we have different names of exercises, mm -hmm. right? You might call a T-roll push-up, and I might call it a breakdancer push-up. We're talking about the same thing, right? Okay. Well, functional is the same thing. So what happens is the miscommunications happen when us trainers don't do a good enough job of providing our own definitions of what we mean when we say. So when I say, oh, well, that's not functional, or that's very functional, and then I just go on to talk about things, but you have a definition in your head of what you think functional means. And maybe your definition in your head is it's a meaningless buzzword. Mm -hmm. But I think in my head, it means 3D movement, standing on your feet, non-isolation, which is a very common definition. I may have another definition for it. Mm -hmm. But if I don't tell you what I mean by that term, we've already have a miscommunication. Mm -hmm. And you multiply that times how many trainers are out there, of course you're going to have chaos. And not just chaos within the trainers, but then chaos within their clients' understanding. And I suppose that's how that kind of Correct. idea proliferates from there. Correct. So the first thing that we need to do to overcome that, maybe you're uncomfortable with the dictionary definition I provided, mm -hmm. then the onus is on you if you're going to use the term. The first thing you need to say is, by the term functional, I mean this. Mm -hmm. Now, moving forward, so you know, anytime I use that term, I mean based off of this. Mm -hmm. Now, people can argue or disagree with that, but at least they know where you're coming from and they're not going to misinterpret your perspective. So a lot of it is just really on us for not for throwing out umbrella terms, but not clearly defining what we mean by that. Mm, not managing the expectations around, around the language that we're using. And that just goes back to human relationships. 100%. If you don't set expectations and communicate, you don't really have a good relationship. Mm, absolutely. So you, you mentioned, obviously, evidence-based practice, evidence-based research. How important is that to you in the work that you do? And where where do you go? Where are you looking? Who are you reading? What are you paying attention to? All right, so this is another thing that's debated, misunderstood, whatever. The, the definition, the Saget definition of evidence-based is really three things. Best research, clinical reasoning, client needs. It's those three legs. Mm -hmm. So a lot of times when people throw out research studies, especially when it goes against trainers' clinical reasoning or observations that they've made, they'll turn around and they'll say, oh, well, you know, I can't wait for a study to be in hand and everything. It's mm -hmm. the combination of the three, but a lot of times there's a clash, which is what brings up the debates, 
and I'm going to answer your question directly here, but I think this is an important qualifier, is it's not saying that you can't you also use your observation. What it's saying is that we have to test our anecdotes against the evidence. Mm-hmm. And when they don't line up, the first thing, the default is not to think, well, the evidence is wrong and the scientists must be lying or they following the money or whatever. The first thing to think is, well, maybe I'm giving the wrong explanation for the conclusion, for the things that I saw, mm-hmm. right? So I saw an outcome, but I don't know why. Great example. There was a study done on low back pain patients. They split them up into two groups. One group got a very specific Pilates, very regimented and very structured core strengthening type of program. So very, you know, from a Pilates perspective, a very smart, you know, periodized, planned program of turning on this muscles versus these muscles, whatever. The other group just got bike, right? In about the same time frame, 30 minutes or whatever it was. At the end of the study, who got better? Everybody, <laughs> right? Why? Because exercise works. Mm. Now, if you took the Pilates and you did this very specific sequence and someone comes along and says, well, Pilates isn't you know, the, best, you know, the best thing since sliced bread for, you're gonna go, I don't care what all your research says. So, because you know it worked for you. But the conclusion in your head is it was because of that specific way that you trained. Mm-hmm. It's the way they had you breathe. It's the order of exercises, which is why you're going to get locked into that. And then you're going to try to treat everybody like that. So your conclusion, you, well, I, don't, I know what I saw. You absolutely know what you saw. Problem is your explanation for what you saw is off. It's not because you did some Shaolin monk secret magic <laughs> to the body. It's just because you did some regular exercise that was tolerable to you and you kept up with it. So sometimes that's, that's where a lot of times the gaps happen. And that's why we have to test our anecdotes against the evidence. Mm-hmm. Now, you, the, the question that you asked me is why do I value that? Well, I value it for the reason I just brought up is because we have to understand there's a gap between what people who focus on, who value scientific evidence and people who don't. And I can tell you, because I've been on both sides of it. Mm -hmm. If you talked to me 15 years ago, you'd get a very different trainer, (laughs) right? Is I learned about social psychology. I didn't go to college for it. You can read basic books, basically about how your brain works. We've heard things like confirmation bias. We've heard terms like logical fallacies and things like that. But it's way deeper than that. Our brains are kind of wired to jump to conclusions. We misrepresent, misinterpret the evidence of our own experience all the time. I just gave you an example from a research study of of how that happens. And we can talk about all kinds of cool evidence on that. It's just how our brains are wired. So we're very fallible when it comes to coming to accurate conclusions. We see patterns when they're not there. We miss patterns that are there. And that's why science and statistics came up. It came up to try to find, to refine observation knowing that there's a lot of gaps and there's a lot of ways we can misinterpret, misremember, and misjudge the evidence of our own experience. If you don't understand those things, if you don't understand what regression to the mean is and what bias towards positive evidence means, means we tend to look for evidence that only supports what we believe and tend to ignore and forget things that don't, mm-hmm. right? Then it's very easy to overvalue your own experiences and the conclusions because you don't know any different. You don't know that you have these blind spots unless they, you know, unless someone teaches you about how your brain works. Once you learn that, then you start thinking, well, holy crap, like, like what, well, what methods are out there to help me refine some of this and limit some of these things? Oh, that's science. That's why they have peer review. You're biased, I'm biased. Mm -hmm. 
And if we had four more other people here, they're all biased. But peer review is when all our different biases come together, they all start to cancel each other out. And we start to get a little closer to the truth. Ah, I see, right? So this is why these things happen. This is why you have blinding, things of that nature. So that's why I value evidence. And going back to my other comment, why I said I don't care a lot as much, as much about what experts say, because experts are human. I'm one of them. I'll be the first to tell you on things that I've been wrong about. I've even written blog posts about it. You mentioned that you have, you know, you're a very different trainer than the one that you were 15 years ago. What is the major difference between the Nick Timonello of then and the Nick Timonello as a trainer now mm-hmm. that might be of interest or relevance to trainers yeah. to, to understand or learn from? Fantastic question. So it's, I would say two big things come to mind. One of them has to do with all the experience I've had in organizing my thoughts and becoming an educator. A lot of people think when you're educating more, you're obviously training less and somehow you're losing your, you know what I mean? Your wheels are getting rusty (laughs) or something like that. That's actually not true. I'll cover that in a second. The other one, speaking to the thing we were just talking about recently, is getting a lot better at critical thinking and evaluating. So I would say if you talk to me much earlier I was much more caught up in conflicting information. You know, I don't know who to believe because one expert says this, one expert says that. And I was, and, you, and you're constantly getting educated and there's so many things out there. So I would say there's two pieces of that. One is, is I was not as good at filtering information. So the takeaway to this is instead of focusing on conclusions, you believe this is good, I believe this is not so good. That's a little bit overly simplified, but just for the sake of conversation. We tend to focus on that. So you, you think opposite me. I don't know who to believe because we're, they're both experienced and smart. That's the wrong question to ask. The question to ask is why do what reasons, what thinking process has brought you to that conclusion? And then you turn to me and you say, what thinking process has brought Nick to that conclusion? Well, then if you come back to it and I have my belief because it's what my old wrestling coach taught me, but you're going based off of a peer-reviewed, you know, or a meta-analysis, which is a very high level of evidence, yours wins, mm-hmm. right? So you're using a much more reliable process to come to the conclusion that you have than I am. So therefore, you win. So it's not really conflicting information. It's different conclusions, but one is much less likely to be correct because it's rests on really shaky ground. And that's how you avoid being confused. You look at the, the reasoning why someone got there what their evidence is, what the rationale is. If they start using things like logical fallacies, well, I learned it from so-and-so who's an expert. Well, there are other experts who are just as experienced as that expert who disagree with them. So if you use that same line of reasoning, then how do you know who's, who between those two is right? Not good enough, you see? That's where logic comes in. So much better at seeing through things by um, evaluating claims with critical analysis, not just saying, I really like that expert, they speak to me and they say this, so, you know, I'm going to believe them, right? I think that's a really important point and it kind of touches back to the, the question I asked about who has your attention. Before I get to that, I, I would love to find out, you know, for, for tra- there'll be a lot of new trainers listening mm-hmm. to this podcast mm-hmm. and there is so much inf- information accessible to them now, you know, mm-hmm. on the internet. There's content everywhere. Mm-hmm. How, and and you've, you've touched on the idea of them evaluating the process of how someone came, you know, came to a conclusion. But for trainers that are just trying to find reliable sources of information on the, on the internet, how do you suggest that they would go about starting to do that? Sure. So well, what I would say is if you start evaluating claims, 
and this is just like math, right? If when we're all little kids and we start doing, you know, we start just doing addition. And if you said three plus two is six, your teacher wouldn't just say, no, it's five, remember five. Your teacher's gonna say, show me your work. Mm -hmm. How did you come to six in this problem? And then when you show it on your fingers, you see, count it, three and two, that's five. That's basically saying, what is your reason? What is your evidence? It's nothing to be offended about when someone asks you that. So it takes. So the first step with trainers is actually going to take a little bit of intellectual work. You don't just want to sit back and trust somebody because at that point, you if you really care about your clients, then you need to take a little step further because the fact that there's so much conflicting information out there shows that not everybody can be equally right, right? And I don't mean about subjective things that are opinion-based. I mean things that are objective. If someone says a certain posture makes, makes it more likely that you're going to get back pain, that's an objective claim. Either, it's, either the stats are in the favor or they're not. Mm-hmm. So if you say they're not and I say there are, one of us has to be wrong, right? Either smoking increases your risk of cancer or it doesn't. That's an objective claim. All right. So there is no your truth versus my truth. That's subjective. You like Hawaiian pizza. I like pepperoni pizza. That's subjective truth. So we first can't confuse the two. So you have to evaluate the claims. And for anybody who's taken philosophy, that basically the term is epistemology. It means a way of knowing. How did you come to know this? So you evaluate those claims. What you will find is that you'll start to see certain names, certain information providers seem to you know, make sure that their claims are resting on a little stronger ground, a little more stable ground than others. And you can also see when they're a little bit more intellectually honest. Now, when I say that, it doesn't mean other people are intentionally being dishonest. It just means that they're not qualifying their things as much. So for example, if somebody says, well, you know, here's my claim and here they give you several scientific references. You know, however, you know, based off of this, we can speculate this, that, and the other thing. And when I think about all this, one of the ways that I, you know, I feel is important is this. So they actually told you three things. They gave you some objective evidence for an objective claim. They told you what was speculative based off of evidence. And they told you what was opinion. Some people will speak of their opinion as fact. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's intellectually dishonest. Most people don't know it is. But, you know, they didn't qualify. Hey, this is based on my own anecdote. This is based on something that's outside of me, like an evidence scientific evidence. So you'll start to see that some people spend more time and energy on how they say things, what they don't say, referencing, you know, things. And then you start to, you can assign confidence values. Oh, this person, every time I check their work, the research lines up with exactly what their claims are. They seem to go out of their way to tell me what they don't have evidence for, just what they believe so they don't confuse me. And other people you'll see are play a little bit faster and loose with their opinions, you know, and don't seem to throw a lot of references or the references are just other experts who agree with them. Mm -hmm. I'm the editor-in-chief of an NSCA journal. You know, referencing my book to say that it's truth is not good enough because I'm just another person with another opinion unless I have scientific references to that thing. Mm -hmm. So these are little details you you gotta check. And then certain people, you'll just see that's kind of their way of doing things. And some of those, uh, would you like me to name some names? I would love you to. Yeah, that'd be great. So I would tell you some of the folks that I assign high confidence values Mm -hmm. to based on their previous work. Mm -hmm. It's an earned respect. In nutrition would be Alan Aragon, Marie Spano, Mm -hmm. or two. In training, Brad Schoenfeld, Brett Contreras, Eric Helms, James Krieger. Mm -hmm. There's some of the names that definitely are jumping. If you're looking for things about like pain science... I would say Ben Cormack, 
Jason Silvernail. He's a military physical therapist. He doesn't do a lot of writing and training, so you might not be familiar with his work. Mm -hmm. I've co-authored some work, works with him. Yeah. Gregory Lehman, who's amazing. He's more in the pain rehabilitation realm. Okay, great. So then I guess the question that comes to mind next is you've identified that there are sort of five types of clients that personal trainers would work with. Mm -hmm. And how do PTs need to work differently with each of them? Sure. Can you differentiate those five types and then what trainers, what you think trainers should understand? Okay, great. So this is a good example of something that's more subjective, okay. right? So if clients were to come to me, of course, we have their initial interview. And, and the, the meat and potatoes of the interview is basically, why are you here? Right? What, what are your goals? And then the individualization is finding out what exercises they don't want to do or what, you know, what direction we need to take to get them there based off their ability, medical history, all those things. But normally people's goals fall in what I would consider five categories, right? And the two categories that I'm going to leave out of this is because I would consider them special population are obese. So I don't mean someone who's just trying to lose a few extra kilos. Mm -hmm. I mean someone who's been sedentary for a really long time and they're grossly obese or post-rehabilitation. So those are obviously very reasonable clients to work with. It's just beyond of what I'm going to talk about here. I'm speaking in more generalities now. So you have people that tend to have more physique-related goals, so I call them a physique client. And I don't mean you're training for a physique competition. It obviously applies to men and, and women. It just means that your main goals are more show, mm -hmm. you know, biceps, shoulders, glutes, things like that. Mm -hmm. Then you kind of have the opposite of that spectrum, which is more about the go, right, performance. Performance can have kind of two branches. It could be more like gym performance. You're really just, you're not into any sports really, kind of the, the whole training is your sport kind of thing, right? So you really are focusing on chasing some numbers and metrics and lifts, how many push-ups you can do, whatever it may be. It could be how high you jump. And then also you have people who are, you know, recreational athletes or high-level athletes field court and combat sports. And they're, they're there to use strength conditioning as a way to better express their skills, you know, less longer on the field, minimize injury, that kind of thing. Then you kind of have someone who's kind of in the middle. And I would say, I call this the P2 hybrid. P2 means two Ps, performance, physique. Mm -hmm. And I would say a lot of trainers and strength coaches are probably in that realm where we want to look better. We want to gain some muscle. So we got a little bit of that bodybuilding and strength training realm. But we also want to do some more athletic stuff. We don't just want to train pure, you know, pure bodybuilding type. And so we do some 3D stuff and maybe some explosive stuff. We do more of like an integrated program. And even that one's interesting because I would call that the P2 could depends on which P you put first. You could say performance physique, which would be someone who's, let's say, is already pretty big and strong and says, look, I really want to get a little more coordinated and faster. So we focus a little bit more on the athletic work and then maintain the muscle that they've got. Other people may be the opposite, right? For example, like a young kid who's getting ready to go to college in the U.S. and maybe plays American football and their coach says, you know, we really would like you to put on 10 pounds of muscle before you start the season, right? So I got to focus more on the muscle, the physique component of that and still do some performance as well. Then you get into the Fs, fat loss. What it really means is maximize fat loss while minimizing muscle loss. And again, being specific, I'm not talking about obesity for sedentary people. Mm -hmm. I mean, like most folks who are trying to use a few, you know, lose some, a few kilos, two, five, sure. ten, whatever. But they're already exercising and, and you just want to get a little bit more refined. Obviously, the number one thing there is being a caloric deficit mm -hmm. and obviously emphasizing more whole foods. But you can do some things with exercise. And then the last one is the most common one. It's fitness or more specifically general fitness and health. And 
that's the one we seem to kind of forget about, even though 90% of clients, that 90% of trainers and 90% of training settings are working with. And they're the people who are everyday moms and dads, doctors, lawyers, every other job you can think of. And they're not gym rats. They don't want to be gym rats. They don't want to chase PRs. They don't want to chase a bigger back. They're using exercise to stay active, more as weight management. They're not into meal prepping. And you might train them for one, two, three, four, five, ten plus years, and they hardly look any different from the day they started working out with you. (laughs) That doesn't mean they don't care. They've been working out with you two, three days a week for eight years. They care. You know, that's a lot of money. They probably bought you a new car at that point if you added it all up. The fact is they just don't care about the things that us gym rat trainers care about, which is chasing PRs or, you know, meal prepping and things like that. They're using exercise for general health, and we seem to have forgotten about that. I mean, exercise helps you reduce the risk of all-cause mortality. It's basically trying to live longer and not get diseases. Somehow we've, 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 us fitness professionals have forgot about fitness. We think if it's not for physique or performance, then you're just... And what's the point? And what's the point? And that's, that's horrible. Why do you think that is? Is it because there's been a really big emphasis on setting, you know, like smart goals? Or what do you think is behind that? Why are we not identifying or appreciating the value in, in such a large percentage of our clients focusing on fitness? Well, what I think it is is because our... Fee- I'm going to be... i got to qualify. You know, I would say my... Our field... You know, we're a bunch of individuals, right? So I'm not responsible for what you do or what anybody else does. But when when I'm speaking to our field, what I mean is that when I kind of look at the the general tone and emphasis of how information is being delivered and how a lot of people are spending their money and trainers on their continuing education and things, what I've seen is a drastic shift, and a lot of it actually has to do with the continue how continuing education is going. It's become less about the client and more about the trainer. For example, and I'm, the examples I'm going to use right now is not picking on the people in this population, so it's just an easy example. What I find is a lot of trainers will spend their money on continuing education, but normally they spend their money on continuing education about the things that they really like. Mm. So if they're really into powerlifting, they'll, they'll go to powerlifting courses. But that's not necessarily best for what all their clients, unless they run a powerlifting gym, and it's basically you don't walk through the doors unless you're into powerlifting. Mm-hmm. If you're really into kettlebells or you're really into some sort of, you know, primal movement training, we seem to, like, focus on all our attention on that because we like that. And then, in addition, and this is actually one of the reasons why I started personal training, because I've always been a trainer. (laughs) What I've always noticed is a lot of trainers, when I would go to conferences, which is a lot, before I was speaking, were going to education sources that were primarily not trainers. They were physical therapists, rehabilitation specialists, physios, or strength coaches, like working in collegiate settings or have some private strength conditioning center, which mostly kid athletes and high-level athletes, college strength coaches, things of that nature. We can learn from people in all allied health professions, but the problem is the perspective that those two professionals have is very different than what fitness professionals have. For example... If you're a physical therapist, it's not about creating an experience that someone enjoys and wants to continue coming back to, right? It's not about leading a long-term lifestyle. It's about whatever the insurance will cover or however long the person will pay out of pocket and has a specific goal. Hey, my shoulder doesn't move all that well anymore Mm. post-surgery. you got to get me to a certain range of motion and, you know, let me go. Now, we can always... Yeah, I'm in pain. Now, obviously, we can all argue about the methods that they use. That's, That's not the point. Don't focus on that. 
focus on the fact that that's the perspective, that the physical therapist leads the way. Mm -hmm. The physical therapist in that case is always number one. The strength coach in collegiate settings is number one. Mm -hmm. If you're on a team, if you don't do what they say, whether you like it or not, you're off the team. You're not a team player at that point. Now enter the personal trainer. The client is number one. The client can come and go as they want. If they're not happy, there's a million other different trainers with a million other different styles that they can go to. And we can also make a break whether they think whether they like exercise or not. And that we can also do a lot to make them think this exercise thing is not for me. If we give them too extreme or go too fast, try to treat them like a gym rat, going back to the other things we were talking about. So a lot of it, and here's the idea, going straight back to it. We have people who come to us two, three times a week who are dedicated, who just want to get their butt kicked. And not saying that makes you a good trainer, but they know that if you can challenge your body, that's a good thing. Break a sweat as long as you're not doing things that are beyond your capability and exercise regularly. That's what every medical professional has told us for a long, long time. So us trainers, we go further. We want performance or physique. So we don't value that as much. So then when they come to us, we basically try to push them into this, into the box that we like. Mm. And then we get frustrated when we think, oh, well, they don't care. Mm. And so sometimes we're actually putting our own thing on them, whether we know it or not. And then even though we're passionate about helping people. So that's what I mean by you add the continuing education component about the tone that it comes from. And then you add, you know, more and more trainers who are excited about things who are really gym oriented. And you put those things together. And I think we've kind of lost our way as a whole because it's become more about us and less about the client. So then what do you see as being the role of a personal trainer now because I, I do believe that it's evolved. I think clients are expecting more and wanting more from their trainers in terms of, you know, they need, they want detailed nutrition advice. They want to understand coaching and mindset and how they can establish a, a long-term positive relationship with their fitness program or the training mm-hmm. program. Uh, you know, there's so many more hats that a trainer needs to wear. Mm-hmm. What do you see as being the ultimate role or job or responsibility of a personal trainer? I'm going to answer flat out. I'm going to give a wider range. Just say it depends on the the individual. Mm -hmm. And I know that doesn't provide any practical advice, so I'm not going to leave it at that. But the reason why I say that is this. All the answers are right in front of you, and they're your client. Mm -hmm. I would say we need to ask a lot more questions. Why are you here? How will you? What's the first thing we can do to make you feel like you are getting your money's worth Mm -hmm. here? You know, what would you really like? Again, like you said, setting expectations and then continuing to do those because those will evolve we don't do a good enough job of asking questions. What are your goals? Oh, I get you. okay, good. Let's get you going. You know, and then all of a sudden we start rolling on whatever we think they need kind of thing. So it's a change of perspective. And you, interesting you said what hats we need to wear. So now I'm going to make it a little more specific. I actually talk about this in one of my workshops. I call it the three hats of the personal trainer. There's client, there's five types of clients that we talked about. That talks about how the trainer looks at the client. Right. I don't, of course, I don't go to a client. If you came to me and I asked you questions, I would go, okay, well, you are a P2 hybrid client. That, that's like from my own perspective. But the question is now, how are you looking at me? Because perception is reality. Well, people that are in the performance physique really are looking for a, a coach, right? I'm going to use three terms here. Coach, trainer, and PE teacher for adults. <laughs> All right. Coach... Yeah, and I know some trainers, they want to call themselves coaches versus trainer and then say performance specialist or whatever. Okay, that's, a little, that's just what you put on your shirt or whatever you think is going to give you more attention. The definition of coach, again, going back to the dictionary definition, it comes from stagecoach, getting from A to B. 
So those people fall in the category like you talked about. They don't just want the training. They don't just want the workout. They want mindset stuff. They want the daily texts. Mm-hmm. They may want the, you know, a few day every other day emails. They want the check-ins. They want the logs, right? Those people are a little bit more, dare I say, dedicated, right? They're a little bit more gym rat oriented. Mm-hmm. Because normally they have a very specific goal with a certain timeline that they're training for. So what they want from you, how they look at you, is a little different than someone like, I would say, like who would put in the fat loss or like P2 hybrid kind of thing would fall into. They're looking for more like a trainer. They're basically saying, hey, look, yeah, I'm using exercise to maintain, you know what I mean, to stay kind of athletic, but my main thing is Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu or Muay Thai or rock climbing or be able to play tennis. And for, you know, they like a variety of things. Or it's just to lose fat. So they know they want a little bit more directed workout. But they're not necessarily in the thing where they always want you on them all the time. I would be in that category. Like if, if I had a trainer, I'm super autonomous. If you're sending me daily texts and motivational quotes, I'm firing you on the spot. <laughs> you, and, you are annoying the crap out of me. Mm-hmm. All right. And I will flat out tell you, you know, I'm here to deal with you when I train. When I leave... Leave me alone, (laughs) right? You know, if I want something from you, I'll ask. That's how I am, right? So there's a personality aspect to all this that we need to consider. Going back to questions, asking your client. So, and I would say that fat loss people could go into the, some of them you could go into the, they want more of a coach. Other people would be the trainer. So when I, how I'm delineating for the sake of this, remember I talk about communication, how I'm delineating coach from trainers. Coach, they really want all the additional things. They would love every time you send them articles about things, they're going to eat it up. Other people will just think you're just nagging them and annoying them, right? So you ask those things. So I would say people in the fat loss category, it's going to be personal where they go either way. Or uh, sorry, in the P2 hybrid as well. So we could go either way with those. But they're mainly most of those people that fall in those categories are just looking for a smarter training direction. They're saying, I'm already working out, but can you look at my program and make sure it's the best for me based on my injuries, based on my goals? Mm-hmm. But mo- they don't want all the motivational stuff and help you, you know, figure out their circadian rhythms and all these mm-hmm. things, right? Then you have the general fitness person. And really what they're looking for is a PE teacher for adults. That's why we have so many of these group training, the gyms that are out there, that are kicking butt, you know, they have doors just, you know, their doors, are, their gyms are full because what they base it off of is variety and experience. Now, us trainers, you know, us very program design oriented people, we go, oh, my God, you know, it's not individualized, blah, blah, blah. Well, there's something they're doing right because a lot of people are coming in there. Now, yes, I know the general population doesn't necessarily know what's best for them, but they know what they want. Mm. So those businesses have tapped on that. But it, what we can learn from that is how are they looking what are they looking for? Because that's what they're going to stick with. We know eating behavior is the best diet is the one you'll stick with. Mm-hmm. But we never say the same thing about exercise. Same thing, right? Adherence is the number one. So it has to fit your preferences. They're not chasing lifting numbers. They're not trying to get a bigger back, bigger deadlift. They don't really think about it before. This is We all know this client. This would be the client. Some of us have these as personal training clients. Not only have they not looked that much different, yeah, they're doing better in the gym, they're fitter because they exercise, but they seem to never remember anything you taught them, right? You know what I mean? Like, oh, we're gonna do Iranian deadlifts. How do you do that again? You're thinking like, haven't we done this like 18 times? That's that client because that's, it's not a priority to them. It's secondary to them. They're, supposed, they're trying to be an elite mom, dad, accountant, doctor, lawyer, whatever, mechanic, whatever. They're using it 
to stay active because they know that's a way to stay alive and stay healthy and lead an independent lifestyle. All set the set aging and sleep better and less stress and all those other wonderful things that us trainers seem to have lost focus on. So what they're basically, they'll be happy to do whatever. That's why it's PE. Hey, what is our physical activity for today? Right? And I'm happy to do whatever. I trust you. So, and first off, that's a very reasonable thing to do. Not everybody who say starts that way stays that way. Some people, they'll train like that and then they start going, yeah, you know what? I really want to focus a little bit more on building muscle now. I'm really getting my strength lifting. You know, that's cool. But they came to that on their own. That's a decision they came to. You can help facilitate it. So in that case, there's a different programming approach. There's a different communication strategy that's used for those clients based on why they're there and what's going to keep them there. All of this said without compromising yourself. So let me give one more practical example of what I mean by how communication impacts this. So I talked about there's some people who are really more into the physique realm, some people more in the performance realm. How different are the programs going to be? There's certainly going to be more similarities and differences in all of them. Everybody does lower body exercises and pushes and pulls, right? It's how you organize and prioritize workouts that make it individualized. Beyond the scope of this to get into that, that's more about program design. That being said, communication might be a little different. So remember I joked about the whole train movements, not muscles thing? If someone who's very physique-oriented comes to me, again, it doesn't mean you're getting on stage, but you just say, man, I really want to get my arms bigger and really get more butt and wider back. You think in muscles and your goals are muscle size oriented. You're going to gauge success by what? Muscle size. Muscle size, Mm -hmm. circumference, how they look, how they flex. So then I start talking to you in movements. Oh, well, we're going to work on, and we all have different terms, right? Oh, we're going to work on your posterior chain. They're going to go, what is that? Right? Or we're going to work on your fascial lines. This is for your lateral line. Whatever terms that you use. Oh, well, I train movements, not muscles. Well, that's about you or is it about them? Right? So we all have different terms. You're not speaking to this client where they are. And not only that, it's not about dumbing things down. They basically, if they don't ever hear back in the terms that they're speaking to you, you're thinking, are you actually training me for my goals? Because I'm ordering a Caesar salad and it sounds to me like you're going to make me a a Greek salad. (laughs) Right? That's the analogy. You know, when am I going to do some bicep curls here? Because, you know, that is what I asked you for. And that is, you shook my hand and took my money, right? And you said you're supposed to help me with my goals. So you see how I'm tying this all back to making about the trainer, less about the client? 100%. Now, let's say you have a performance-based client. That person is more about, well, I'm going to get faster this way, lateral. Then you start talking posterior chain. You know, you start talking in upper body. This is a push this is a vertical push. This is a rotary exercise. So I'm not even going to classify exercises in the same way when I'm training a physique versus a performance-oriented client because all that stuff is relationship building and buy-in. Right? So these are things that why I do those classifications and tying everything full circle where you talked about and making about the client, not about the trainer. So essentially, unless you're a trainer that is, that is specializing in a particular area, as you say, they're just working with powerlifting clients, mm-hmm. then really it's about having a really wide-ranging set of tools in your toolbox that allows you to pull from and draw and use the appropriate terminology, focus, activities with the client that's in front of you rather than just speaking to your own bias or your own preferences. Yes, but I need to clarify that as well because anybody who's good with business and especially nowadays will tell you you have to niche yourself. Mm-hmm. So what I'm not saying is try to be this, you know, the, obviously the default is people say, oh, you're going to try to be a master of none, right? Mm-hmm. Well, 
sometimes we mistake the tools of our job for the job itself, mm-hmm. right? A carpenter doesn't need to be a master drill person or a master hammer person. They need to be good at building stuff. Now, there might be specializations in what you build, commercial buildings versus residential or something like that. That would be your goal, right? But your tool belt, the same principles apply. You know, basically the mechanics of what's going to hold up a, a structure <laughs> is the same. Those are training principles, specificity, overload, individuality, variety. So your expertise should be in principle-based program design, not about methods. And this is another problem. We have trainers who are, seem to be great because they've memorized methods of a given certification, you know, a course or a given training guru that they really follow. But in that case, you seem to be going from methods down. We need to go from principles up. And now, how you express those methods is going to be individual to the goal. So you may have some speciality there in regards to really focus more on physique development or, or performance. And there's some other nuances there. Maybe there's certain combine tests that you have to understand. Or if you're in a physique and especially competitive, then you have to understand the posing and things of that nature. So there's, I'm not saying just try to be this master of none. What I'm saying is that the principles dictate the training direction not your, and that's what we really should master. And if you start there, you should be able to recreationally train any anybody and very effectively. Maybe you have a certain type of client that makes you most excited, mm-hmm. right? But that's the difference. But no, it's not about not niching and just trying to be this, you know, all-in-one tool because in that case you will, you won't be the best at that. Mm. Can't be all things to all people. At that one, at that one thing, yeah. So Nick, if you had you know, one last message or concept or something that you would like listeners of this particular podcast episode to walk away understanding about your work or what you think that they, sh- they should or could be bringing to their clients to make, you know, to help reach the goals that they have, what would that message be? I would just say, you know, ask your clients more questions about things like this. What do you like? Mm-hmm. Why are you here? Why do you continue coming here? A lot of trainers ask questions like, well, what do you think I can do better? And then most of your clients are going to go, oh, you're doing great, you know, this, that, and the other. What can we do to make you feel like you're actually, you know, reaching your goals? Now, some of them are going to be very long-term goals, like mm-hmm. you losing 20 kilos or something like that, right? Okay, fine. But knock that down to something a little bit more, you know. What are your favorite exercises? What do you hate, right? What type of workouts do you like? Faster paced, slower paced? Because if you're a good trainer, there's lots of ways... You know, lots of roads to Rome, as they say. There's lots of ways to get them the results that they want. Your challenge is to reconcile that with what is going gonna, is gonna to most excite them. Now, there's sometimes where you just can't compromise. For example, if you came into me and you said, I really want to get much stronger, but I hate lifting heavy. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm sorry. We can't do that. Sorry. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> that, that, those two just run into one another. Yeah. Something's got to give here. Either you're not getting your goals or, you know, or you just basically get used to lifting some heavy stuff. Mm-hmm. So sometimes you, you don't have a lot of movement. But if your goal is to lose fat and build some muscle, well, we have good research from people like Brad Schoenfeld that show five sets of 10 will work just as much as 10 sets of five. So now you ask, well, what do you prefer? Well, if I'm your client, I'll tell you anything under six reps bores me to death. I'm a grinder. I prefer 12, 15, 20s. Good. So we're going to go a little bit more higher volume you know, sets, not doing five and six sets. We're not going to do super heavy stuff, you know. Because those things just tend to bore me. I do some heavy lifting, but not as much as some other people. 
So that's what I mean. That's really at the heart of everything I'm, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm really talking about. We've covered a lot of ground today, Nick. Your book, Building a Muscle and Performance, mm-hmm. where can people find that and how can they find out more about, about the work that you're doing? Well, if we're throwing shameless plugs in here, then I'll say I have three books. You do. You do have three books. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So they're all available on Amazon. Mm They're, through, they're published through Human Kinetics. Mm-hmm. So if you happen to have some sort of trainer account with Human Kinetics that gets you a discount, go that route. It helps me, the author, better if you if you buy it through Amazon, though. Mm-hmm. I have three books. Strength Training for Fat Loss came out in 2014. It actually just made Human Kinetics top 10, like, all-time best strength training books That's to huge. have. Congratulations. Thank you. And then the second one came out in 2016, Building Muscle and Performance. Remember I was talking about physique, physique yes. hybrid, performance? That really focuses on the performance and the, and the P2 hybrid. And then the new book is called Your Workout Perfected. Nick, thank you so much. Wow, there's so much content there. I know that all the people listening to this podcast are going to have so much value from it. So Nick Tomello, thank you so much for joining us on the Fitness Industry Podcast. I really appreciate you having me. Thank you. To grow the success of your fitness business, learn from the industry experts in Network's online course, Tactical Strategies for Fitness Business Success, accredited for CECs and other professional development points. Go to the Network website, select the Courses tab, and click on Fitness Mastery Series. Members of Australian Fitness Network save 25% on this course, so go to fitnessnetwork.com.au to grow your fitness business. And for face-to-face learning, remember that network members also save on standard rates for Phylex, the fitness industry convention.